9. Burr, leaves, and grain. The nest is very simply constructed, consisting of dried grasses placed upon the ground and sheltered among the herbage. Two species of this bird, called forest grouse, are indigenous in England, one is the black grouse, common in the pine woods of Scotland and of the northern part of England, and elsewhere, the other is the capricalsy or cock of the woods, formerly, in Ireland, and still more recently in Scotland, this noble bird, the most magnificent of the whole of the grouse tribe, was abundant in the larger woods, but it gradually disappeared, from the indiscriminate slaughter to which it was subject. Selby informs us that the last individual of this species in Scotland was killed about 40 years ago, near Inverness. It still abounds in the pine forests of Sweden and Norway, and an attempt has been made by the Marquis of Breadalbane to reintroduce it into Scotland. The red grouse, or moor grouse, is found in Scotland, and it is somewhat singular that this beautiful bird should not be known on the continent, abundant as it is on the moorlands of Scotland, England, and Ireland. The breeding season of the red grouse is very early in spring, and the female deposits her eggs, eight or ten in number, in a high tuft of heather. The eggs are peculiarly beautiful, of a rich brown color, spotted with black, and both herself and her mate attend the young with great assiduity. The brood continue in company during the winter, and often unite with other broods, forming large packs, which range the high moorlands, being usually shy and difficult of approach. Various berries such as the cranberry, the bilberry, together with the tender shoots of heath, constitute the food of this species. The plumage is a rich coloring of chestnut, barred with black. The cock grouse in October is a very handsome bird, with his bright red comb erected above his eyes, and his fine brown plumage shining in the sun. The ptarmigan grouse is not only a native of Scotland but of the higher latitudes of continental Europe, and, perhaps, the changes of plumage in none of the feathered races are more remarkable than those which the ptarmigans undergo. Their full summer plumage is yellow, more or less inclining to brown, beautifully barred with zigzag lines of black. Their winter dress is pure white, except that the outer tail feathers, the shafts of the quills, and a streak from the eye to the beak are black. This singular change of plumage enables it, when the mountains are covered with snow, to escape the observation of the eagle. Iceland falcon, and the snowy owl, the feathers become much fuller, thicker, and more downy, the bill is almost hidden, and the legs become so thickly covered with hair-like feathers, as to resemble the legs of some well-furred quadruped, Piedimos, Patmos affords one of the few exceptions which are to be found to the general beauty and fertility of the islands of the Aegean Sea, its natural advantages, indeed, are very few, for the whole of the island is little else than one continued rock rising frequently into hills and mountains, its valleys are seldom susceptible of cultivation, and scarcely ever rewarded. Almost the only spot, indeed, in which it has been attempted, is a small valley in the west, where the richer inhabitants have a few gardens, on account of its stern and desolate character. The island was used, under the Roman Empire, as a place of banishment, and here the Apostle Street John, during the persecution of Domitian, was banished and wrote the book of the revelations, the island now bears the name of Patino and Pomosa, but a natural grotto in the rock is still shown as the place where St. John resided, in and around it, says Mr. Turner, the Greeks have dressed up one of their tawdry churches, and on the same site is a school attached to the church, in which a few children are taught reading and writing, Patmos used to be a famous resort of pirates, Dr. Clark, 
after describing with enthusiasm the splendid scene which he witnessed in passing by Patmos, with feelings naturally excited by all the circumstances of local solemnity, and the evening sun behind the towering cliffs of Patmos, gilding the battlements of the monastery of the Apocalypse with its parting rays, the consecrated island, surrounded by inexpressible brightness, seeming to float upon an abyss of fire, while the moon, in milder splendor, was rising full over the opposite expanse, proceeds to remark, how very different were the reflections caused upon leaving the deck, by observing a sailor with a lighted match in his hand, and our captain busied in appointing an extraordinary watch for the night, as a precaution against the pirates who swarm in these seas, these wretches, as dastardly as they were cruel, the instant they boarded a vessel, put every individual of the crew to death, they lurked about the Isle of Fury, to the north of Patmos, in great numbers, taking possession of bays and creeks the least frequented by other mariners, after they had plundered a ship, they bored a hole through her bottom, and took to their boats again, the knights of Malta were said to be amongst the worst of these robbers, in the library of the monastery, which is built on the top of a mountain, and in the middle of the chief town, may be seen bulls from two of the popes, and a protection from the emperor Charles VI issued to protect the island from their incursions, though deficient in trees, Patmos now abounds in flowering plants and shrubs, walnuts and other fruit trees grow in the orchards, and the wine of Patmos is the strongest and best flavored of any in the Greek islands, the view of Patmos from the highest point is said to be very curious, the eye looks down on nothing but mountains below it, and the excessive narrowness of the island, with the curious form of its coast, have an extraordinary appearance. S-H-A-K-S-P-A-R-E. Memorable in the history of genius is the 23rd of April, as being at once the day of the birth and death of Shakespeare, and these events took place on the same spot. For at Stratford-upon-Avon this illustrious dramatist was born, in the year 1564, and here he also died, in 1616. It has been conjectured, that his first dramatic composition was produced when he was but 25 years old. He continued to write for the stage for a great number of years, occasionally, also, appearing as a performer, and at length, having, by his exertions, secured a fortune of two or three hundred a year, retired to his native town, where he purchased a small estate, and spent the remainder of his days in ease and honor. When Washington Irving visited Stratford-upon-Avon, he was led to make the following elegant reflections on the return of the poet to his early home. He who has sought renown about the world, and has reaped a full harvest of worldly favors, will find, after all, that there is no love, no admiration, no applause, so sweet to the soul as that which springs up in his native place. It is there that he seeks to be gathered in peace and honor among his kindred and his early friends, and when the weary heart and failing head begin to warn him that the evening of life is drawing on, he turns as fondly as does the infant to the mother's arms to sink and sleep in the bosom of the scene of his childhood, how would it have cheered the spirit of the youthful bard, when, wandering forth in disgrace upon a doubtful world, he cast a heavy look upon his pastoral home, could he have foreseen that, before many years, he should return to it covered with renown, that his name should become the boast and glory of his native place, that his ashes should be religiously guarded as its most precious treasure, and that its lessening spire, on which his eyes were fixed in tearful contemplation, should one day become the beacon, towering amidst the gentle landscape, to guide the literary pilgrim of every nation to his tomb. 
be accredited birthplace of Shakespeare has always been regarded with great interest, it is situate in a street in Stratford, retaining its ancient name of Henley, being the road to Henley in Arden, in 1574, here stood two houses, with a garden and orchard attached to each, and these houses were then purchased by John Shakespeare, whose son William was born in one of them, which still remains, though altered according to modern fashion, its gable roofs are destroyed, divided and subdivided into smaller tenements, part was converted into a little inn, part, the residence of a female who formerly showed the room where Shakespeare first saw the light, and the low-roofed kitchen where his mother taught him to read, the walls of the room in which he was born are liberally covered with thousands of names, inscribed in homage by pilgrims from every region where the glory of Shakespeare is known. At the time when Shakespeare's father bought this house, it was, no doubt, quite a mansion, as compared with the majority of the houses in Stratford, but he little guessed the fame that would attach itself to this birthplace of his gifted son, long, we trust, to be preserved for the gratification of future generations of visitors to the hallowed spot. Besides his plays, Shakespeare was the author of several other poetical productions, and especially of a collection of sonnets. The Return of the Dove, their hope in the ark at the dawning of day, when o'er the wide waters the dove flew away, but when ere the night she came wearily back with the leaves she had plucked on her desolate track, the children of Noah knelt down and adored, and uttered in anthems their praise to the Lord, O bird of glad tidings, O joy in our pain, beautiful dove, thou art welcome again, when peace has departed the care-stricken breast, and the feet of the weary one languish for rest, when the world is a widespreading ocean of grief, how blessed the return of the bird and the leaf, reliance on God is the dove to our ark, and peace is the olive she plucks in the dark, the deluge abates, there is sun after rain beautiful dove, thou art welcome again, McKay, cobra diatropello hooded snake, there are several varieties of this venomous serpent, differing in point of color, and the aspect of Egypt, with which Cleopatra destroyed herself is said to be a very near ally to this species, but the true cobra is entirely confined to India. The danger which accompanies the bite of this reptile, its activity when excited, the singularity of its form, and the gracefulness of its action, combine to render it one of the most remarkable animals of the class to which it belongs. When in its ordinary state of repose the neck is of the same diameter as the head, but when surprised or irritated, the skin expands laterally in a hood-like form which is well known to the inhabitants of India as the symptom of approaching danger. Notwithstanding the fatal effects of the bite of these serpents, the Indian jugglers are not deterred from capturing and taming them for exhibition, which they do with singular adroitness, and with fearful interest to the unpractised observer. They carry the rectals from house to house in a small round basket, from which they issue at the sound of a sort of flute, and execute certain movements in cadence with the music. The animal from which our engraving was taken is now in the menagerie of the Zoological Society in the Regent's Park, and is probably one of the finest which has ever reached England alive. The Indian Mangus is described to be the most deadly enemy of the Cobra di Capello, and the battles between them have been frequently described. The serpent, when aware of the approach of the Mangus, rises on its tail, and with neck dilated, its head advanced, and eyes staring awaits with every look of rage and fear the attack of its foe. The mangust steals nearer and nearer, and creeping round, endeavors to get an opportunity of springing on the serpent's back, and whenever it misses its purpose and receives a bite, it runs perhaps some distance, 
to eat the mangust grass, which is an antidote against the poison, it then returns to the attack, in which it is commonly victorious. The bite of the cobra di capello is not so immediately fatal as is commonly supposed, fowls have been known to live two days after being bitten, though they frequently die within half an hour. The snake never bites while its head is closed, and as long as this is not erected the animal may be approached, and even handled with impunity, even when the head is spread, while the creature continues silent. There is no danger. The fearful hiss is at once the signal of aggression and of peril, though the cobra is so deadly when under excitement. It island nevertheless. Astonishing to see how readily it is appeased, even in the highest state of exasperation, and this merely by the droning music with which its exhibitors seem to charm it. The natives of India have a superstitious feeling with regard to this snake, they conceive that it belongs to another world, and when it appears in this, it is only as a visitor. In consequence of this notion they always avoid killing it, if possible, the Pyramid Lake. Perhaps of all the localities of the Oregon Territory so vividly described in Captain Fremont's adventurous narrative, the Pyramid Lake, visited on the homeward journey from the Dallas to the Missouri River, is the most beautiful. The exploring party having reached a defile between mountains descending rapidly about 2,000 feet, saw, filling up all the lower space, a sheet of green water some 20 miles broad. It broke upon our eyes, says the narrator, like the ocean. The neighboring peaks rose high above us, and we ascended one of them to obtain a better view. The waves were curling to the breeze, and their dark green color showed it to be a body of deep water. For a long time we sat enjoying the view, for we had become fatigued with mountains, and the free expanse of moving waves was very grateful. It was like a gem in the mountains, which, from our position, seemed to enclose it almost entirely. At the eastern end it communicated with the line of basins we had left a few days since, and on the opposite side it swept a ridge of snowy mountains, the foot of the Great Sierra. We followed a broad Indian trail or tracked along the shore of the lake to the southward. For a short space we had room enough in the bottom, but, after traveling a short distance, the water swept the foot of the precipitous mountains, the peaks of which are about 3,000 feet above the lake. We afterwards encamped on the shore opposite a very remarkable rock in the lake, which had attracted our attention for many miles. It rose according to our estimation 600 feet above the level of the water, and, from the point we viewed it, presented a pretty exact outline of the Great Pyramid of Cheops. Like other rocks along the shore, it seemed to be encrusted with calcareous cement. This striking feature suggested a name for the lake, and I called it Pyramid Lake. Its elevation above the sea is 4890 feet being nearly 700 feet higher than the Great Salt Lake, from which it lies nearly west. The position and elevation of Pyramid Lake make it an object of geographical interest. It is the nearest lake to the Western River, as the Great Salt Lake is to the Eastern River, of the Great Basin which lies between the base of the Rocky Mountains and the Sierra Nevada, and the extent and character of which it is so desirable to know. Many parts of the borders of this lake appear to be a favorite place of encampment for the Indians whose number in this country is estimated at 140.000, they retain, still unaltered, most of the features of the savage character. They procure food almost solely by hunting, and to surprise a hostile tribe, to massacre them with every exercise of savage cruelty, and to carry off their scalps as trophies, is their highest ambition. Their domestic behavior, however, is orderly and peaceable, and they seldom kill or rob a white man. 
considerable attempts have been made to civilize them, and with some success, but the moment that any impulse has been given to war and hunting, they have instantly reverted to their original habits. Adam and Eve in paradise. Now came still evening on, and twilight gray had in her sober livery all things clad. Silence accompanied, for beast and bird, they to their grassy couch, bees to their nests, words like all but the wakeful nightingale, she, all night long, her amorous desk and sung. Silence was pleased, now glowed the firmament with living sapphires, Hesperus, that led the starry host, rode brightest, till the moon, rising in clouded majesty, at length, apparent queen, unveiled her peerless light and o'er the dark her silver mantle threw when Adam thus to Eve, fair consort, the hour of night, and all things now retired to rest, mind us of like repose, since God hath set labor and rest, as day and night, to men successive, and the timely dew of sleep, now falling with soft slumberous weight, inclines our eyelids, to whom thus Eve, with perfect beauty adorned, my author and disposer, what thou bidst and argued I obey, so God ordains, with thee conversing I forget all time, all seasons and their change, all please alike. Sweet is the breath of morn her rising sweet, with charm of earliest birds, pleasant the sun, when first on this delightful land he spreads his orient beams on herb, tree, fruit, and flower, glistering with dew, fragrant the fertile earth after short shores, and sweet the coming on of grateful evening mild and silent night, with this her solemn bird, and this fair moon and these the gems of heaven, her starry train, but neither breath of morn, when she ascends with charm of earliest birds, nor rising sun on this delightful land, nor herb, fruit, flower glistering with dew, nor fragrance after showers, nor grateful evening mild, nor silent night, with this her solemn bird, nor walk by moon or glittering starlight, without thee is sweet, thus talking, hand in hand alone they passed on to their blissful bower, Thus at their shady lodge arrived, both stood, both turned, and under open sky adored the god that made both sky, air, earth, and heaven, which they beheld, the moon's resplendent globe, and starry pole, thou also madest the night, maker omnipotent, and thou the day, which we, in our appointed work employed, have finished, happy in our mutual help and mutual love, the crown of all our bliss ordained by thee, and this delicious place for us too large, where thy abundance wants partakers, and in cropped, falls to the ground, but thou hast promised from us to a race to fill the earth, who shall with us extol thy goodness infinite, both when we wake, and when we seek, as now, thy gift of sleep, Milton, Oliver Goldsmith, Goldsmith's poetry enjoys a calm and steady popularity, it inspires us, indeed, with no admiration of daring design or of fertile invention, but it presents within its narrow limits a distinct and unbroken view of poetical delightfulness. His descriptions and sentiments have the purest of nature. He is refined without false delicacy, and correct without insipidity. Perhaps there is an intellectual composure in his manner, which may, in some passages, be said to approach to the reserved and prosaic, but he unbends from this graver strain of reflection to tenderness, and even to playfulness with an ease and grace almost exclusively his own, and connects extensive views of the happiness and interests of society with pictures of life that touch the heart by their familiarity. He is no disciple of the gaunt and famished school of simplicity. He uses the ornaments which must always distinguish true poetry from prose, and when he adopts colloquial plainness, 
it is with the utmost skill to avoid a vulgar humility. There is more of this sustained simplicity, of this chaste economy and choice of words, in Goldsmith than in any other modern poet, or, perhaps, than would be attainable or desirable as a standard for every writer of rhyme. In extensive narrative poems, such a style would be too difficult. There is a noble propriety even in the careless strength of great poems, as in the roughness of castle walls, and, generally speaking, where there is a long course of story, or observation of life to be pursued, such excursite touches as those of Goldsmith would be too costly materials for sustaining it. His whole manner has a still depth of feeling and reflection, which gives back the image of nature unruffled and minutely. His chaste pathos makes him an insulating moralist, and throws a charm of clog-like softness over his descriptions of homely objects, that would seem only fit to be the subjects of Dutch painting, but his quiet enthusiasm leads the affections to humble things without a vulgar association, and he inspires us with a fondness to trace the simplest recollections of Auburn, till we count the furniture of its alehouse, and listen to the varnished cloth that clicked behind the door. Campbell, Hager and Ishmael. Hager and Ishmael departed early on the day fixed for their removal, Abraham furnishing them with the necessary supply of traveling provisions, and Abraham arose up early in the morning, and took bread and a bottle of water, and gave it unto Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, and she went away. The bottle here mentioned was probably made of the skin of a goat, so now, leaving an opening in one of the legs to serve as a mouth. Such skin bottles are still commonly used in Western Asia for water, and are borne slung across the shoulders, just as that of Hagar was placed. It seems to have been the intention of Hagar to return to her native country, Egypt, but, in spite of the directions she received, the two travelers lost their way in the southern wilderness, and wandered to and fro till the water, which was to have served them on the road, was altogether spent. The lad, unused to hardship, was soon worn out, overcome by heat and thirst. He seemed at the point of death. When the afflicted mother laid him down under one of the stunted shrubs of this dry and desert region, in the hope of his getting some relief from the slight damp which the shade afforded, the burning fever, however, continued and abated, and the poor mother, forgetting her own sorrow, destitute and alone in the midst of a wilderness, went to a little distance, unable to witness his lingering sufferings, and then, she lifted up her voice and wept, but God had not forgotten her, a voice was heard in the solitude, and an angel of the Lord appeared, uttering words of comfort and promises of peace. He directed her to a well of water, which, concealed by the brushwood, had not been seen by her. Thus encouraged, Hagar drew a refreshing draught, and hastening to her son, raised him by the hand, and gave him the welcome drink, which soon restored him. This well, according to the tradition of the Arabs, who pay great honor to the memory of Hagar, is Zemzem, near Mecca. After this, we have no account of the history of Ishmael, except that he established himself in the wilderness of Paran, near Mount Sinai, and belonged to one of the tribes by which the desert was frequented. He was married, by his mother, to a countrywoman of her own, and maintained himself and his family by the produce of his bow. Many of the Arabian tribes have been proud to trace their origin to this son of the patriarch Abraham, the holy bow, ye who have scorned each other, or injured friend or brother. In this fast-fading year, ye who, by word or deed, have made a kind heart bleed, come gather here, let sin against, and sinning, forget their strife's beginning, and join in friendship now, be links no longer broken, 
be sweet forgiveness spoken under the holy bough. Ye who have loved each other, sister and friend and brother, in this fast fading year, mother and sire and child, young man and maiden mild, come gather here, and let your hearts grow fonder, as memory shall ponder each past and broken vow, old loves and younger wooing are sweet in the renewing under the holly bough. Ye who have nourished sadness, estranged from hope and gladness, in this fast fading year, ye with O single quote your burden single quote de mind, made aliens from your kind, come gather here, let not the useless sorrow pursue you night and morrow, if ever you hoped, hope now take heart, and cloud your faces, and join in our embraces under the holly bough, McKay the universe, to us who dwell on its surface, the earth is by far the most extensive orb that our eyes can anywhere behold, but, to a spectator placed on one of the planets, it looks no larger than a spot, to beings who dwell at still greater distances, it entirely disappears, that which we call alternately the morning and the evening star, as in the one part of the orbit she rides foremost in the procession of night, in the other ushers in and anticipates the dawn, is a planetary world, which, with the five others that so wonderfully vary their mystic dance, are in themselves dark bodies, and shine only by reflection, have fields, and seas, and skies of their own, are furnished with all accommodations for animal subsistence, and are supposed to be the abodes of intellectual life. All these, together with our earthly habitation, are dependent on the sun they receive their light from his rays, and derive their comfort from his benign agency. The sun day which seems to us to perform its daily stages through the sky, island in this respect, fixed and immovable, it is the great axle about which the globe we inhabit, and other more spacious orbs, wheel their stated courses, the Sunday though apparently smaller than the dial it illuminates, is immensely larger than this whole earth, on which so many lofty mountains rise, and such vast oceans roll, a line extending from side to side through the center of that resplendent orb, would measure more than 800.000 miles, a girdle formed to go round its circumference, would require a length of millions, are we startled at these reports of philosophers? Are we ready to cry out in a transport of surprise? How mighty is the being who kindled such a prodigious fire, and keeps alive from age to age such an enormous mass of flame? Let us attend our philosophic guides, and we shall be brought acquainted with speculations more enlarged and more inflaming. The sun damn with all its attendant planets, is but a very little part of the grand machine of the universe, every star, though in appearance no bigger than the diamond that glitters upon a lady's ring is really a vast globe like the sun in size and in glory, no less spacious, no less luminous, than the radiant source of the day, so that every star is not barely a world, but the center of a magnificent system, has a retinue of worlds irradiated by its beams, and revolving round its attractive influence all which are lost to our sight, that the stars appear like so many diminutive points, is owing to their immense and inconceivable distance immense and inconceivable indeed at island since a ball shot from a loaded cannon, and flying with an abated rapidity, must travel at this impetuous rate almost 700.000 years, before it could reach the nearest of these twinkling luminaries, while beholding this vast expanse I learn my own extreme meanness, I would also discover the abject littleness of all terrestrial things, what is the earth, with all her ostentatious scenes, compared with this astonishingly grand furniture of the skies, what, but a dim speck hardly perceptible in the map of the universe, it is observed by a very judicious writer, that if the sun himself, 
which enlightens this part of the creation, were extinguished, and all the host of planetary worlds which move about him were annihilated. They would not be missed by an eye that can take in the whole compass of nature any more than a grain of sand upon the seashore, the bulk of which they consist, and the space which they occupy, are so exceedingly little in comparison of the whole, that their loss would leave scarce a blank in the immensity of God's works. If, then, not our globe only, but this whole system, be so very diminutive, what is a kingdom or a country, what are a few lordships? or the so much admired patrimonies of those who are styled wealthy, when I measure them with my own little pittance, they swell into proud and bloated dimensions, but when I take the universe for my standard, how scanty is their size, how contemptible their figure, they shrink into pompous nothings, Addison, O two Street Cecilia, now strike the golden lyre again, a louder yet, and yet a louder strain, break his bands of sleep asunder, and rouse him, like a rattling peal of thunder, Hark, hark, the horrid sound has raised up his head, as awaked from the dead, and amazed, he stares around, revenge, revenge, Timotheus cries, see the furies arise, see the snakes that they rear, how they hiss in their hair, and the sparkles that flash from their eyes, behold a ghastly band, each a torch in his hand, those are Grecian ghosts, that in battle were slain, and in buried remain inglorious on the plain. Give the vengeance due to the valiant crew. Behold how they toss their torches on high. How they point to the Persian abodes. And glittering temples of their hostile gods. The princes applaud. With a furious joy. And the king seized a flambeau. With zeal to destroy. Ties led the way. To light him to his prey. And. Like another Helen. Fired another Troy. Thus. Long ago. Ere heaving bellows learned to blow. While organs yet were mute. Timotheus to his breathing flute and sounding lyre, could swell the soul to rage, or kindle soft desire, at last divine Cecilia came, inventress of the vocal frame, the sweet enthusiast, from the sacred store, enlarged the former narrow bounds, and added length to solemn sounds, with nature's mother wit, and, 